Welcome to the Energy Change Agents Podcast. I'm your host, Claudio Gaiken. Are you as curious as me about the future of energy? Do you want to learn from passionate innovators with bold plans who are already making our world more sustainable? Then subscribe and connect with like-minded energy professionals in the InnoEnergy community. So, are you ready to get inspired? Hi, and welcome to our third episode on Energy Change Agents. This is Claudio Geiken, your host. Today, we will talk to the founder and CEO of EcoLego, Martin Barth. EcoLego is a four-year-young German startup supported by InnoEnergy, active in low-income countries in all continents. With crowdfunding, they help bridge a funding gap for companies in these countries to install solar and battery systems. Martin Barth is saving the planet as CEO of EcoLego. He also is the co-chair for IRENA, evaluating projects in developing countries. He has more than 15 years of experience in the solar industry and emerging countries and puts big ideas into action. So, without any further ado, let's begin the podcast. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Claudio. Thanks for having me. You're good? Yes, very good. Thank you. I uh, hear you're calling from uh, Costa Rica these days, so we're having an intercontinental uh, interview. Um, Yeah, so to start off, uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, your background? Sure, yeah. Um, How far back do you want to go? I leave it up to you uh, to do, but but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I I started my career as an uh, electrical engineer, um, actually with a local municipality in Germany, and... um, Back then, already was working on on grid connected solar PV projects, and that really got me fascinated that we can generate, you know, um, emission free energy. And I questioned myself, okay, why um, is that not done more? Um, and then ventured into a, a master's program and was lucky to um, to relocate to Australia with this program and work for a company that worked in off grid systems. And it was even more eye opening because, you know, I. Up to that, I didn't even know that we still had so many areas on the planet where there was no um, electrification. I always took it for granted that you know everyone had access to electricity. And um, when finishing that that masters, um, I really got hooked to the idea of bringing renewables to off grid systems. And the company back then was working on um, more the um, industrial and commercial side of things, so not uh, rural electrification, but rather um, already existing diesel power stations, you know, for research uh, stations, um, uh, remote towns or mines, uh, these kind of projects. And um, then I, I was uh, working for the company, um, spearheading their European operations. And we got very lucky and the owners sold the business to ABB. You know, ABB, one of the, the large corporates in the, in the energy right. space. And um, I was then building up there what's now the microgrid uh, division. Um, so really exciting field, you know, applying new technologies on, on grid stabil- uh, stabilization, uh, frequency response to basically integrate more renewables and keep the grid stable. And um, from that on, I, I quickly noticed that, you know, working in a large corporate has its uh, pros, obviously, but there are also some cons, which to me basically meant, you know, a lot of politics, slow processes, um, you, you have a lot of admin work, you, you can't really focus on, on uh, generating impact. And um, I decided to leave the corporate world and join a startup in 2013, where I was the first employee um, that was trying to develop um, solar projects in East Africa predominantly and uh, was focusing again on off-grid systems. So I, th- I thought that's, that's a really great fit. You know, it's fit, it fit, fits my background. Um, it allows me to uh, learn something new, explore a new region on the world. And uh, for two years, I was working with them. Um, but we didn't really succeed in, in really implementing a lot of projects. And that was because, um, yeah, customers in these market segments often did not want to put their own capital into these projects. And that's actually how um, 
my co-founder Marcus and I um, came up with the idea of, of Ecoligo, of our current startup. And, um, you know, I met Marcus 2013 during a business trip in, in Nairobi, actually, in Kenya. And we both talked a lot about how we could improve that more and more projects uh, on the solar side are getting built. And, uh, yeah, uh, in 2015, we basically made the decision to, uh, to quit our jobs and, and start Ecoligo. And uh, that across which time frame, would you say, from which year to which year? Well, I graduated with my bachelor's in uh, 2008 and was in Australia for two years. Then um, working for, a, for ABB a few years um, and then starting, you know, Ecoligo, you know, leaving, leaving my job in 2015. So um, starting Ecoligo in, the, in February 2016. Okay. And so in short, what is Ecoligo doing? Yes, so um, what we do is actually um, quite quite simple. Um, we're solving the problem of finance for our renewable energy projects. And what that means is we bring finance to markets in which there is um, no financial instruments. And we build solar projects that help our customers, which are commercial and industrial clients, to reduce their energy bill. Um, and we get the finance through crowd uh, investing in Germany. So we basically bring two business models together. The one is uh, the one that's in the traditional energy industry called the independent power producer. Um, so we are a, a, an energy producer selling to commercial and industrial customers, and we finance these projects with the crowdfunding, and that's the second side of the business model, you know, raising capital uh, and providing an attractive interest rate to private investors um, here in, in, in Germany. Got it. And what were the, the milestones you had so far since the, the start four years ago? Oh, there are so many. Um, <laughs> I think the, <clears throat> the first one was really <clears throat> when we hired the first, um, the first employee. Uh, that was, uh, to us, you know, a, a game changer from, you know, being two founders with, with a crazy idea and suddenly having responsibility of, you know, someone else in the team and, you know, having to manage, um, you know, people as well as our, our business and business idea. And that was a little bit uh, one of the, the major stepping stones. But obviously, besides that, the first one was signing the first contract with a customer, right? Actually seeing that a customer is putting their trust into a startup and into the idea that you have and, that he's trusting you to deliver and to, um, you know, realize the project and bring him um, solar energy. And um, the first customer that we had was um, Stambic Bank in Ghana, which is, um, you know, one of the largest banks in Africa. And it really to us meant a lot that, you know, even a prestigious uh, brand um, is willing to go with a startup with their idea. Yeah. And how did you make that first uh, customer happen? Uh, it's always the first one is the hardest to get. Yes, the first one is the hardest to get. That's definitely true. I mean, this customer took us almost two years um, from from the first, you know, getting to know each other until signature of the contract. Um, I think it was a, a mix of persistence. So we uh, really kept on following up with him, but also... Um, the fact that we were knowledgeable in what we what we did and what we presented to them, and we really had the know how of um, the the technical side of the solar projects, but also the commercial side. And I think that's that's quite important, you know, that you really know um, your market that you're in and the product you're offering uh, in and out, because otherwise, I think it's it's just not gonna um, sell, and it's not gonna sell itself either. So you were um, specifically looking into Ghana and knew the market there pretty well? Or? Yeah, so we um, started off with the idea uh, in general to bring our concept to um, uh, to African countries. That's how we started off. We thought, okay, it's predominantly a problem in Africa. Um, and we picked uh, Kenya and Ghana as the two countries to start off with um, for a number of reasons. One of them is, um, the high electricity cost for our customer segment. So commercial and industrial clients in these countries pay really high electricity rates. So in Ghana back then, it was up to 38 euro cents per kilowatt hour. 
And obviously, the higher the grid, wow. grid electricity cost is, the, the better the um, solar competition is, right? I mean, the more attractive it is. And so that was um, the key decision factor. But then, obviously, we looked into, okay, how stable are the countries? Um, Ghana uh, is really stable politically. And even when opposition uh, gets elected after an election, there is no um, anti-democratic um, uh, riots happening or anything. So it's a really stable country and, and Kenya the same. And both of them are because of that also, you know, amongst the fastest growing countries. So it made it easy to choose these two um, as sort of the first ones to get in. Um, but yeah, we, we also realized after, you know, looking into to African countries that um, other countries have the same issue. They also would like to build solar projects, um, but are lacking the the access to um, to attractive financing. Mm, makes sense. And and since the beginning, did you have um, some sort of business model iteration um, that you went through, as uh, as a lot of startups do? So the, the initial, let's say, concept and idea uh, ended up to be very different to what you're doing right now. Or? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even at the very beginning, we had this idea, but we had actually no idea of how to realize it, right? I mean, how how to bring finance to these countries and where do we get the money from and how do we do it? And, and it was really just a rough sketch of what we wanted to do. Um, and then the first iteration was that we really thought the crowdfunding is, um, that is the element that's going to give us the money to build the projects. Um, but the initial idea was that we finance projects from third parties. So anyone could come to us, basically, um, present a project idea, we would check the project, and then put it on the crowdfunding platform and um, you know, transfer uh, the funds to the, to the project owners, and they are responsible for the construction of the project, you know, the, the maintenance, and the contracts with the client, and all of that. And that was the first idea. But we then realized, um, after looking more into this, that it's not the ideal setup and it's not the ideal setup because when you transfer funds to someone, um, you, but they are in control of the project, you know, they have the, the contract with the customer. Um, they own the asset, the, the solar system um, and, and so on. You lose control over that, right? So you don't know if that company has signed a maintenance contract. You don't know if the customer is paying on time. Um, so the you're you're actually at risk of um, um, of the capital that you deploy to these projects not uh, being paid back because you don't have the control. Um, we also saw that there are not that many companies in the market that understand the markets well enough to actually find enough projects. So the the first big iteration was that we said, okay, we we can't just transfer capital. We have to actually go down deeper and become active in the markets and actually become the ones that develop projects and then own the projects and take care of operation and maintenance. And that way we can ensure to our crowd investors that we know what's happening on the project. Yeah, And that allows us also, because we have direct contact to the clients, to check the clients. So the whole thing becomes less risky for everyone involved. And uh, it also allows us to scale on the project side, right? Because I can just basically hire more salespeople to find more projects. And by that, have a constant sort of project flow coming to my platform. So the initial idea was really, okay, we are just a crowdfunding platform, like many others out there in the market. But we, we pivoted basically to become a project developer, a project owner that just uh, to make these projects work uses its own crowdfunding platform. So quite a, hmm. a change, basically. Interesting, yeah. yeah, Very well described. And, uh, and so uh, do you have like um, um, a vision that, uh, that goes in a different direction for the model or uh, is it just about scaling up now this model? Well, in the current phase of the company, I mean, you, you have to put it in perspective. We're, we're three years old. We've um, realized around 33 projects uh, by now. It's really a matter of 
um, generating more impact, right? So we see that the countries that we have entered so far, which are Costa Rica, Ghana, and Kenya, are, um, are good countries to be in. And we see that we uh, can generate more and more projects there. But the next step is really to scale the business, uh, go to more countries, um, and really leverage now the learnings that it took us to um, to set up the business model, you know, think about all the contracts that are involved in, with all the different parties. That was quite the steep learning curve that we had to go through. So I think in the next year or two, it's really about um, putting it to scale and entering more countries so we have a greater impact in terms of, you know, CO2 emissions saved. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I can imagine it's a lot of legal work uh, and also with so many different regulations. Um, that, that's not Definitely. straightforward, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the lawyers always and make what, money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what, what about the, um, the countries' um, uh, profiles that you can go to? Are there any limitations? I can imagine the grid electricity cost, if it's too low, uh, a country is not suitable, but maybe there, there are other um, factors. And what? so what did you kind of um, research that? and? Yeah, yeah, we, we we did research that. So um, there are, there are a number of factors, and grid electricity prices are certainly um, you know the, the the most driving factor whether our customers actually would like to get solar. Um, but there are many others. Uh, I mentioned before political stability. Um, there is also the ease of doing business factor. You know, from from the World Bank that you know describes how easy you can actually set up a local entity. Um, and so on. And we identified um, target markets with um, a set of around, you know, 20 criteria, uh, amongst which also is the market size. But that's all, I would say, quite um, a quite theoretical exercise. Because at the end of the day, if you have a theoretically good-looking market, um, I just pick a random country now. Let's just say Brazil would be a good-looking market, high electricity cost. Um, you know, uh, uh, a huge market potential, a lot of commercial and industrial companies there. That's on paper looking really nice. But I personally don't know anyone in the solar industry in Brazil. So how do you go to the Brazilian market? And how quick can you actually build up relationships um, to be successful in that market? Um, and, you know, do you really want to go into the one country in Latin America that doesn't speak Spanish? You know, and then there's all these soft factors that decide also where do you where do you go, and obviously you have to map that. You have to look at the, the sort of the facts. You know, what does the regulation say? What does the electricity price say? But then, especially when you're a startup with limited resources, I mean, we're still a very small team. Um, you 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 can't just go to every market that looks nice on paper. You have to realistically check it, and um, yeah, find find right partners and so on. So oftentimes, we have countries that we selected as an attractive country, but then we only go into the country if actually we, we get someone from the country to contact us so that we have the first touch point and the first relationship that we can use. Uh, and then typically with that, we also get the first projects. And, and obviously, well, once you have the first project as a reference in a country, that makes it much easier than to enter... Um, to enter the market makes sense yeah no for sure there's uh, things you can plan in life and then there's serendipity and uh, and that plays of course a, a big role and and uh, if, if a country is not the ideal country but you have a, a customer that is pro particularly interested in pushing as well to get the solution um, then it's of course a very compelling argument to prioritize that country right yes yeah exactly and so what, what is the kind of the plan um, for the near-term future, let's say uh, really for, for, for the six months to one year? Yeah, so we're gonna, um, going to enter new markets. So um, Vietnam is high on the list. Um, we're looking into um, uh, Chile. Uh, we're um, looking into um, Colombia. But we haven't um, made, you know, the, the final steps into which... A market we want to enter but that certainly is one of the key things that we were doing in the next few months and then um, besides that we are 
um, working more and more with um, EPC partners. So I, I didn't mention it before, but the, the solar projects that we finance and then own are actually typically constructed by local EPC partners. So um, EPC, for, for those that don't know, it stands for Engineering Procurement Construction. So they provide us with a turnkey project um, and, and th those are really important partners to us, right? Because they um, are experts in what they do. They are the, the best at building projects, but they also know how to get material into the country, which logistics partner to use and so on, so that we don't have to learn all of that in the new countries that we get into. So our idea is also to strengthen the relationship with these partners going forward, uh, making sure that um, we're not just hiring them to build a project, but that we also make sure we can train them and educate them, that they understand our business model also, that they um, um, you know, basically step up the ladder and, and add more value to projects and become maybe uh, you know, sales partners for us so that they can also sell a um, financed uh, solar project, which, which basically means a, a power purchase agreement. And we want to make sure that the, the the partners that we work with um yeah basically grow with us hmm. and 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 so it seems like this is um um so so that you have many different stakeholders you need to to get so you have these epc partners then you have the c and i uh customers um, then you have the investors in the crowdfunding, which which would you say is is uh, the most difficult to mobilize, or are they equally difficult? <laughs> um, good question. Um, so when we actually started the business, everyone thought we were crazy because we wanted to do all of it, right? We not only wanted to do the crowdfunding, we also wanted to do the projects, and everyone advised us, yeah, only focus on one of these segments. Don't do like the two of them because everyone thought. It's too difficult. Um, you're going to lose focus if you want to make crowd investors aware of these projects and convince them to invest. And at the same time, you're trying to make CNI customers aware of the savings they get when they get a solar power purchase agreement. And and then you need to find someone that builds these projects. And I actually think the beauty of this business model is that the that we do everything together because that makes it much easier to convince customers because we have direct access to the finance. It makes it much easier to convince a crowd investor because they know that I know the, the customer, the CNI customer, and that I've also performed a due diligence on them. And then the EPC partners also know that we bring them a lot of projects um, because we have our own sales. So, it only works because we have those those elements all covered in the business model. Um, but in terms of what's difficult, I think that the difficult element is in a two-sided business model, where you have where you're bringing two markets together that you know previously were not connected, is to find the the right model of the platform. Like how many crowd investors do I need for? let's say, 10 projects? And how do I make sure I get them before I get the 10 projects? But then if I have them and I don't have the projects yet, you know, what do I offer them? And there's, there's trying to find the equilibrium between the crowd investors and the, and the projects. I think that is, that is the challenge, yeah? Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, um, it's maybe not so, it's a territory that is uh, pretty unch uncharted. Um, or do you know... Um, would you say that you have uh, competitors or, or, or let's say, uh, initiatives uh, that are similar to to, to yours, uh, and that that you that you that you can and, and what would would you make different compared to them? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at uh, the crowd investor side, uh, obviously in Germany there are large other platforms. Um, there's um, Green Vesting, there is BetterVest, there is Leidener Umweltgeld. There's a few ones that focus on sustainable energy projects, um, but all of them just transfer capital to third-party project providers. So we actually see them, of course, there are somehow competition because they also uh, want to get money from, from crowd investors that look into sustainable energy projects. 
Um, but if you look at at that way, then we're also competing with any savings uh, account from a bank. We're competing with the stock exchange market. We're competing with green bonds. We're competing with green funds that are set up. And um, the reality is that there are enough crowd investors. There are enough private people with enough capital that we're actually not competing. Um, that their market is so big that there is enough space for all the other platforms uh, for Ecoligo.investments and uh, many, many other financial products. Um, on the project side, however, there there are competitors that also offer um, you know, solar power purchase agreements or solar leasing models that are almost identical to what we offer. The difference there is that they use um, other sources of capital and um, they are obviously competition. They they go to the same CNI clients that that we go to, um, and uh, that is quite normal. I would also say to have that. Um, you know, the the markets there, however, are also so big that sometimes the competition gets a project, sometimes we get a project, sometimes the customer decides to not go for solar. And, but there are enough projects in the market, so we're not we're not worried about the competition. We actually think, you know, the more solar projects get built, the more people become aware uh, that there are alternatives to the status quo. The more CO two emissions will be saved, and the better it is for for the planet. And you know, that's what motivates us. It, it, we're not driven by the the single profit we make in a project. We're driven by our goal to to change the planet and to save the planet nice yeah definitely i underline that and uh, what would you say uh, now if you wanted to really scale in the upcoming years what what would you see as the biggest uh, challenge um yeah <laughs> good question i i think it's something that i really think about a lot um and there are obviously um, some things we can fine-tune in the business model. We can optimize um, our sales process, for example. We can optimize the contracts. We could uh, increase efficiencies. We can digitalize the entire business so that we have less um, sort of manual process of, of anything that we do. We could like automate a lot of these things. But looking back at what I think made us um, achieve what we have achieved to date. Um, it was all about the team. I think if we want to scale successfully, we have to maintain the right, the right team sort of building the right. Uh, we have to find the right candidates. We have to make sure they, they really fit into the team. Well, because we've built up a unique a company culture and, um, that is what made us successful because we we sticked also through the difficult times of you know uh, not winning projects and we really were successful and and people are, that work for us are really motivated and I think that is what allows us to scale the best you know all the other things are, are important as well don't get me wrong but I think if you don't have a um, team that works well together then the nicest software that helps you to digitize your business or something doesn't help because the people are not motivated the people are not driven by the greater goal of the of the company um so i think that is the key to scale successfully so that's the key and is it also the is challenging for you uh in terms of uh, finding the right uh, people fitting your culture i would say it's getting easier with every day and i think that has to do with the fact that uh, we've built up sub, such a good team and we, we recently did a a video because we had a lot of new hires coming up and we did like a little a video of, of how working life at Ecoligo is and what motivates the people that work for Ecoligo. Um, and I think that that had a really positive impact because it's it's very authentic. Like the people don't just say it because someone scripted a, a text uh, for them to say something. No, they really believe what they say. And I think that makes it very easy because we get a lot of applicants that that really value um, the the impact that we have as as much as the work culture. 
I mean, we we all know that more and more people, you know, are striving for a, a decent work life balance. You know, they want to have freedom, flexibility, and work on something meaningful. And I think we can offer that. And I think with every project that we that we build, with every country that we also become active, it becomes easier to attract new talent. Yes. And then this this actually brings me to a to a point that I wanted to definitely discuss with you, which is many companies try to make their business model fit with uh, protecting the environment, but it's difficult to to uh, sometimes adapt it and make it profitable. And you seem to have found a model that that fits pretty well in in this category. Can you uh, can you elaborate your views, especially in in terms of how how important it is it was for you as well to start Ecoligo, trying to combine uh, uh, advancing benefits for the planet and, and benefits for a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the um, the name of the company Ecoligo already represents that. Uh, I mean, Ligo is Latin for to combine, and we combine economic development and ecological energy. So, you know, the eco stands for both of them. And we we think it's the the um the, the key element to achieving bigger impact is to make it profitable. Um because at the end of the day if you're if you're not generating a model in in your business whichever business you are that Uh, is profitable the the business you know will not be able to sustain and we see we see it as a must have we we thought a lot about whether we actually want to start a company or maybe an ngo or something you know more like a in, in germany you have a social club a verein um and we really thought no actually the the best way to achieve the biggest impact is by ensuring that you're finding a model where you where you're profitable And then you can grow and realize more projects and have a, a bigger impact. And I think um, oftentimes in the um, ecosystem of, um, you know, social responsible businesses or sustainable business, um, making profit is seen as a bad thing. Um, but I think that's that's not the right attitude. It's it's an instrument that helps you to achieve bigger impact. Okay, yeah. I, uh, I I agree with that, and and do you, yeah do you have especially because you're working in developing countries and we all know that this is where most of the world's growth is going to come in in the future and and still we're seeing that that uh, these countries are struggling to to um, alleviate uh, poverty mm. and and develop um, what 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 do you see is is the biggest challenge. Um, or said in a different way, how how can we fix this, and what's the role of of companies such as yours? Mm -hmm. Well, the question is, I think, quite philosophical. Um, should should we tell developing countries to not grow? Um, because we we grew in a in a developed country, right? We've been through this phase, and now we're telling everyone you shouldn't grow and you should only do this or that. And I think. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be the ones that, that tell other uh, countries, you know, what to do, what not to do. But I think what we always have as a responsibility is to help them. Um, and with this, I don't mean with aid, but I mean with solutions like ours that enable them to include sustainability into their growth. Right? I mean, if we give a solar project to a commercial company. Uh, maybe a um, hotel here in Costa Rica, and they can reduce their their electricity consumption by by sixty percent. That is a, a very positive thing, and I think um, we should see as as uh, having the responsibility to go to these countries and educate and teach and enable them, enable them to grow, enable them to further develop and alleviate poverty in the countries. But do it in a in a more sustainable way, which nowadays also is the more economical way. Yeah, so I think it's not that we we have to sort of um, um, try to be uh, the good cop and and the bad cop. I think we can just work on a uh, eye to eye level and um, yeah, really help them to develop in a in a sustainable way. Yes. Yeah, and maybe I, I didn't phrase myself uh, correctly, but yeah, I definitely agree that uh, we need to um, uh, allow, and it's actually a, 
an imperative to to make many regions grow in a sense to have enough enough to have a, a life of, of dignity and and it's and it's definitely uh, strange if uh, we are in developed countries would have the yeah the opinion of not letting uh, other uh, countries grow because we grew too much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, my, my, um, related to what I, I asked, so to this question is, yeah, the, the economies in Africa, uh, I think one of the reasons also of Ecoligo's existence is that there was this funding gap up to a certain amount. I think it was 2 million mm. or so. And so why is that uh, just, I think that's a bit, maybe a macroeconomic question. So how, how can, could this funding gap appear? Yeah, I mean, it, it really comes from the the fact that um, the the financial um, industry in a lot of the African countries um, has to, um, to 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 face the the reality that a lot of the people that borrow money money from banks, for example, um, start a business or something, go go bankrupt and don't repay their loans. So the the loan repayment rates are actually quite low. Um, and that is often because, not because the people are bad businessmen, but because there is so much impact to them uh, from bigger sort of societal changes that are happening or inability to uh, get the right materials or, you know, everything you do in a business in, in a lot of African countries is just a notch more difficult than in other places. And um, that, I think, led to the banks. Um not being interested anymore in sort of smaller loans and with smaller mo- loans, I mean like anything between 20,000 and, you know, the one, two million mark. And uh, if they give loans out there, they're just really expensive, right? Because they have to cover the risk and that's how banks banks are thinking. Um, but it also has to do with the fact that a lot of the people that give equity to these markets um, are often uh, foreigners, they're international investors. And, they, for them, uh, for a lot of them, I don't want to say for all of them, but for a lot of them, Africa means risk, right? It, and it, it comes from this subconscious um, understanding of Africa, which is, I think, very outdated. Um, because, first of all, you can't just say Africa is Africa, right? I mean, there's so many different countries and every country is quite unique. But then also... Um, African countries are not per se more risky than other countries, um, but it's a perception that is still in a lot of people's mind. And because it's there, when they give money to these markets, they expect a really high return, right? So that makes a lot of projects unfeasible if you get money from from foreign investors. Um, so, for example, if I want to build a solar project in Germany, I go to my house bank, I get a bank loan, the interest rate is maybe what? one percent one and a half then i'm already at current stage is quite expensive but in africa it's 15 percent and um or even higher and that that is the difficulty and i think we have to educate the market we have to educate the people in uh, developed countries and show them that um there is no risk in investing in uh kenya or at least no more risk than investing in Portugal or Greece or Italy, yeah, and I think um, that's part of our our responsibility that we have to educate um, and make sure that that this system is changed on a global scale. That's that's super interesting, yeah, and uh, and this this perception, um, if this is this is a, the fundamental issue, um, how come Ecoligo is succeeding? Or yeah, how how do you how do you change this perception, and how how come investors are willing to to then give you uh, an in, to give money with an interest rate that is uh, so much lower compared to, to mm-hmm. what uh, yeah what what is usually the given? Yeah, I think I mean Marcus lived in Kenya um, for almost two years, and I lived in Ghana for a um, little under a year. So I think that's of course an element right people see and believe that we know what we're talking about because we have been there um and i still you know travel to um various african countries i don't know 10 10 times a year or so so we really know what's happening in these markets i think that's that's one element and the other is really that we 
try to um, make the investments that the crowd investors do as secure as possible. And um, the third pillar is possibly that we that we show them who is the beneficiary of the project, right? Who's our CNI customer? Um, and we show faces, right? We show like the CEO of a flower farm and letting him explain why the solar system to him is so meaningful. Um, and we're fully transparent in all the projects, right? So the, 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 the crowd investors get to see the entire um, um, economic calculation of that particular project. So they get to see um, the, the capital that it's deployed into the, the payment for the EPC partner. They see how much we pay every, every year on operational maintenance. They see how much we pay on insurance. They see how much money is left and how much we pay back to the crowd investors. And that, I think, builds up trust. Um, people think we're very transparent and transparency helps, right? It, it removes the fear of the unknown. And I think that that is also a driver of, of people wanting to invest in these projects. Hmm. Yeah, so transparency is a key value, you, one could say, that you bring uh, next to um, credibility and, uh, yeah, and, and really filtering the investments, right? So yes. I understand correctly. And, and so, uh, on top, so that's something I was curious about too, uh, related to this is, so you need to filter the project so that they are as secure as possible. So you analyze financial statements and, and so the blue chip companies or, or the ones that, that, um, yeah, that are bigger, are more, or are more secure. And, and so I, I guess you start, uh, with them. Uh, but what about, do you have like a, an idea or an intention eventually to also be an enabler of, uh, of, of businesses that, or clients that are not as uh, secure or don't have like, um, a track record mm. and, and would maybe maybe even uh, arguably uh, bring even more impact to, to let's say, the local uh, economy eventually. Yeah. Now, you bring up an interesting point there, the, the blue chip companies, right? So, I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, Heineken, Unilever, um, Coca-Cola, you know, all the ones where you're uh, pretty sure if you do business with them, you will get paid, right? Like there's, there's no risk in, in these products. Right. Um, but we actually don't focus on them, and we focus on the the local. Um, in Germany, we say Mittelstand, right? So the the SME businesses, privately owned, family owned, um, third, second, third, fourth generation in the in the country, um, having you know build up businesses from the scratch to to where they are now. Um, because they are, first of all, um, much more easy to convince of a solution. In a blue chip company, they will always go to a public tender um, for whatever they want to buy. And uh, that is a lengthy and complicated uh, process with a lot of work that you have to put in. And I much rather spend that work on talking with a farmer in, in Kenya and understanding the problems of the farmer and then presenting him with a solution for his problems. Um, so we, we think that um, the SME segment, similar like in Germany, is where we say often it's the motor of the economy or the engine of the economy, sorry, the, um, is the same in developing countries. They employ hundreds of thousands of people and all these small businesses are the ones that are also doing a lot of community work. You know, they build um, schools, they have uh, literacy programs, they have uh, women employment programs. They are the ones that really care about their local community. And, um, you know, when it's about impact, I think the, the SMEs are the ones that really also have the most impact. I see. Yeah, well, one thing that... Um that came up uh, as you as Ecoligo participated in the Community Days uh, event uh, recently, and we had a panel on Africa that was seen as the biggest um, potential for uh, African developing countries is this, the role of intermediaries um, to basically exactly change the perception for investors on the on the money side as well as um, uh, yeah basically for for investors on the money side to to 
to give uh, and select the right projects uh, eventually. So do you think there are a lot of players uh, in this space next to you or you, you seem to be exactly that type of player? Um, oh, and, and yeah, what type of opportunities do you see there as well to improve uh, the, the situation? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, a lot of the organizations that are working um, in this context um, can, can do more, you know, to change the image of um, the countries that they're active in. And that obviously will have an impact. But I think if we're talking, for example, about NGOs or um, development organizations such, such as uh, GIZ or even the uh, DEG, the Development Bank of the subsidiary of KFW that's active in these markets. Um, anything that's sort of policy, government-related, uh, always takes a lot of time. Yeah, So I think, yeah, there, there will be impact of that, but it's, it's probably very long-term. I actually think the biggest change that we can achieve in... Um, you know, enabling more investment or in, uh, you know, ensuring that the environments are not considered as risky anymore and so on, is if everyone uh, that, that works in these countries, you know, tells and, and really uses their own voice and tells their friends and family and everything uh, of a different, um, let's just say Africa in general, or a different view on developing countries. I mean, um, there, there are all these accelerator hubs, the tech programs, Nairobi and Accra. Both cities are sort of major hubs for young tech startups. Um, the workforce is super skilled and they're just working so hard on like um, uh, building up their own tech industry, tech startups. And I think there's something a lot of people don't know, right? Um, so I think it's right. just more in everyone's responsibility rather than like, you know, large, I don't know, um, enablers or facilitators. I think everyone can take that role. Nice. No, I agree. Uh, that's uh, actually, it's, it's funny this morning. I was just listening again to a, to an interview with uh, Kate Raworth, uh, one of the economists. Uh, I really, uh, I can I recommend and admire uh, about the donut economics. And, and she, she kind of uh, went in the same direction. The, the biggest impact is, is the influence you can have as a as a person in your network, uh, and it's bigger than you think. Yeah, uh, which I find a very empowering empowering way to look at it. So now uh, closing up, uh, we'll come with some rapid fire questions, uh, so that you can maybe give a a, a very uh, short and crisp uh, answer. So, do you have a, a role model, somebody you admire in the energy sector? Uh, yes, uh, Alan Langworthy, who uh, is the founder of the Australian company PowerCorp that I worked in Australia for. Um, he won the uh, Australian of the Year Award for his lifetime commitment to renewable energy, and he powered his house in the 70s with a wind farm, wind, uh, a windmill. Uh, so I think he's a really good role model. <laughs> wow, nice. Uh, what is sustainability for you? Um Achieving less emissions while making a profit, mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, and maybe. <laughs> uh, and what, what is the role of uh, innovation for you? Oh, innovation is the driver behind anything. I mean, like uh, every, every change to anything we know is done by innovation. So without innovation, we would never be where we are as a society. Um, and so I think in, without innovation, we could just also give up. Okay. And um, is there a book that has shaped the way you see the world and why? Um, I would say no, but probably reading a lot of books and soaking up as much knowledge as possible has shaped my views in in general like one one page at a time i would say um, but there isn't a particular one no okay but maybe you can recommend one that uh, that especially in the context that we were discussing uh, you would think would uh, help as well in terms of the perception uh, we were talking about hmm good question actually out of the head uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't know Well, maybe one is called uh, The Bottom Billion, um, and it describes why 
a lot of the countries that are in in extreme poverty um, are not making the, the the steps up. You know why they're not able to develop over time. And it it uh, actually is written by a researcher who has done a lot of uh, data analysis and found out the, the factors that are hindering a lot of the poor countries to come out of poverty. And that's that was a little bit eye-opening because, um, uh, yeah, it's very data-driven and it, it, it gives you a, f a feel for um, what has an impact and how much impact that has on, on poverty. So that I would recommend yeah. everyone working in sort of very cool developing countries yeah super yeah it reminds me of factfulness which i think also is yeah fa yeah nice factfulness is is actually quite similar yeah yeah cool then uh, thank you very much uh, martin we've reached the end i hope uh, yeah it was uh, interesting i i um, i i wish you the best uh, with ecoligo and all these ambitious plans thank that, you uh, definitely making this world uh, a better place Yeah, we hope uh, that we will and we continue to uh, to have a positive impact. So thanks also for, okay. for the time and uh, giving us the chance to, to speak about what we do and what we love. Sure. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. As Ecoligo is doing crowdfunding, there is a special offer for our listeners for you to put the money where your good intentions are and change this perception about developing countries. As a new investor at Ecoligo with a minimum investment of 100 euros, you can get a 25 euro bonus by using the code CHANGE25, written all together at ecoligo.investments. Also, Ecoligo was present at a panel in this year's community main event, the Community Days. If you want to learn more about them, go to the InnoEnergy community playlist on YouTube and watch the upcoming video along with other inspiring speakers found at the Africa Energy Panel. Hey, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. To get the word out to other passionate energy transition supporters, we'd be grateful if you could share it with your network, follow our channel, or even leave a review in any podcast player you use. To learn more about the community, go to community.energy.com. This episode of the Energy Change Agents podcast was produced by the community team of InnoEnergy. A special thanks to Daniel Garçon and I also thank Nienke Swankaisen, Ona Kohonen and the EIT providing the funds to run the community. Keep tuned for our next episode.